Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 56, Intermittent Fasting. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to another fine, fun episode of Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith, and uh, we're a little bit giddy because we've been laughing at the microphones, <laughs> telling each other all kinds of jokes before we get to the mics today. So uh, this episode 56 is going to be a little bit different than the uh, last one that we had, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, lighter in conversation, maybe a little bit more of a geek out, that sort of thing. Uh, this, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, Michael and I sit down at the microphones every Sunday and uh, we record something that's supposed to be good for your health. And I say supposed to be because it's only good for your health if you pay attention. <laughs> and Michael's nodding his head over there, so he agrees with me. Uh, Michael, uh, the last episode we talked uh, about, of all things, pornography and modern sexuality. Uh, do you want to give folks maybe just a little bit of a, a recap as to what we talked about? Well, be, being giddy, I was going to make the joke that we're all now, like, you have to watch two hours of porn a day just to, like, you know, make the internet work or something. But... <laughs> Uh, mostly the conversation was uh, just about how, you know, actually, you know, what's interesting, we didn't actually start with this, so I'm going to bring this up because it didn't actually become a part of that episode, uh, but it was a part of what the episode was about. Um, so when you look at, uh, say, World War One and the pictures that people took in their pockets to go to war, mm-hmm. and the sense of what photographs of a woman would be like, and then um, the pictures that people would have taken to World War Two and then Vietnam, and someone made a book of this, actually, where they, they looked at all those different pictures, and they used that as kind of a way of looking at the accelerated graph of how uh, people's stimulation uh, around intimacy or affection and or sexuality around images was suddenly going from like a normal looking person to a person in only certain kind of clothing and then a person with only a certain kind of like you know 36 24 36 kind of thing in the in the sense of what we you know became compelled to be excited by i guess as men around what beauty is and then if you look at uh, the advent of pornographic magazines and then video and then you know the internet and everything else uh, the conversation was really mostly about just the acceleration of how um, much more separate we are with our intimate partners and how much more we tend to project what we have seen or expect or desire from, you know, uh, pornography compared to the actual intimacy that may arise between two, you know, happy humans. And we got in a little bit of the difference between men and women and in the sense of what, um, what kind of pornography we'd uh, probably look out uh, or seek out to find. Uh, and how that difference really does tell us a lot about maybe how dangerous the the direction, you know, modern pornography is going is fundamentally to intimacy. I mean, if you want to fantasize, obviously, or masturbate and, you know, see something, uh, as long as no one's getting hurt, obviously, there's nothing really wrong going on. But with respect to the idea of uh, actual, the nourishment, the profound even hormonally measurable impact deep intimacy has on people, we're losing that, mm-hmm. you know, because who cares? You know, oh yeah, well, we've already had sex 10 times and I've done all the things I wanted to do to you instead of with you. So, yeah, right, because we're driven by what, you know, basically what's going on in the visual cortex. So, 
that was sort of the extracted bits is we've come to a very strange idea of what attraction is, what intimacy is or isn't, what sexuality is supposed to look like, you know, and what we're supposed to be doing in bedrooms and bathrooms and, you know, over on farm implements or something. <laughs> Try yeah. to keep it funny, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a really, I think a really interesting uh, episode just because we really do get to the heart of, you know, I think we even spoke to our own experience around what that's mm-hmm. been like for us and, uh, it was a bit explicit, but I don't think we went over the top. Yeah, and I think that's uh, something that was uh, a bit of a departure from how it is we normally compose ourselves on the on the podcast, uh, speaking frankly. Um, and uh, it was very informative, and uh, there was even some sort of, um, dare I say this, a happy ending. Yeah, right, I think. Take the serious herbs before the podcast. <laughs> That's right. Well, not today. <laughs> today, <laughs> you might want to open a window to see if we get some uh, some air in here. But seriously, there was um, uh, some sort of uh, ideas and resolution to all of the different things we were talking about. So um, certainly, you might want to uh, go back into the library, uh, the Fusion House Radio Library, and look for episode fifty-five. It's the one that says "explicit" right in front of it, because we're talking about pornography and modern sexuality. Uh, today is a different story, though. Uh, episode fifty-six: intermittent fasting. Um, I think we've talked about fasting off and on uh, over the past couple of years. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think we might have even done a podcast on fasting, did we not? Uh, I think it is a part of um, an, another subject, but we've talked about fasting, I think, more in the context of what spiritual uh, practices uh, that include fasting are really focusing on. Mm-hmm. And well, that, that was pretty early on when we talked about that. Yeah, which is why I'm having trouble remembering it because my, my notes don't go that far back. <laughs> I'd have to look at the internet. Yeah, we don't always do this every week. So it's been about two and a half years and we're at 56. So you know, we've missed a few Sundays. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but still, um, the idea of intermittent fasting is, uh, what's what's the right word for it? It's kind of like in the in the now, like it's kind of something that's, uh, that's up. And so uh, Michael and I, when we were pulling names out of a hat as to what we were actually going to talk about for the next couple of episodes. This one came up and um, it struck me as kind of curious because I'm like, oh yeah, that's a thing for people. And uh, it seems kind of popular. Michael's like, oh yeah. So um, why is it popular? What's this all about? What's intermittent fasting? So I think before getting into intermittent fasting, you know, if we were to think of like this podcast or any podcast as an opportunity to learn more about problem solving, what's the problem that, that intermittent fasting is solving? Because that's why everyone's going, holy crap, I've never seen so much change so fast for so many people. Hmm. So I'll just start with the, the problem. So we're all pretty familiar with, I think, the what is called the obesity crisis or uh, perhaps more accurately described as the diabetes crisis. Right, especially in the modern world, especially in the U.S., you know, Great Britain, Canada, you know, somewhat behind. Um, I haven't got a full kind of list in my head of statistics around the world, but the more developed a country is, the more dependent they are on processed foods, the more their shopping habits are driven by commercials, the more people start eating commercially driven foods as children. You know, I only want the food with the dancing bears and purple stuff mm-hmm. and marshmallows or blah. <laughs> So, you know, that that's sort of the beginning of this problem that, you know, as, as a society, we actually have changed profoundly what it is we think of as food, not, not as, you know, food, snack, party, you know, celebration meal only or whatever. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm allowed to eat food well, and it's, if I can buy it and it's, you know, doesn't come with some kind of, 
you know, obvious side effect, then it's food. And, you know, the fact we call junk food food is, you know, a bit terrifying because anything just below junk food is considered probably almost healthy. I've got a friend, I went to his place uh, recently um, looking for a bite to eat. I was feeling a little peckish. I looked in his fridge to find, you know, the typical bachelor fridge of like, you know, a half-eaten sandwich, some cold pizza, a couple of beer, um, and uh, an empty carton of milk. (laughs) And I was like, don't you have anything to eat in this house? He goes, what are you looking in there for? And then he opens his cupboards and everything that he eats comes out of a box or can. Right. Um, Which, you know, may or may not necessarily be bad, but in his case, it was just abysmal. It was just, um, you know, sugar-coated this and over-processed that and just, um, you know, salt-laden soups. Yeah. All, all the crappy stuff. Yeah. Really uh, interesting to see. So, so, I mean, when you talk about junk food, some people just don't realize that there's a distinction between what junk food is and whatever something comes out of a box is. Yeah. And that's when we kind of go over the thing about sticking to the wall or what people call perimeter shopping, where when you go to the grocery store, depending on your grocery store, but most of them you just stick to the wall. And... Um, and then you just get what you need. Um, you know, and it's interesting when I do like cleanse courses where people commit two, three months to trying to, you know, do the right thing for themselves. The, the first conversation I have with everybody is, so where are you going to take all that crap out of your house and like give it to a neighbor, give it to a soup kitchen, like, a, you know, you know, through a homeless shelter. Like, can you just grab all that stuff in like a fury of, you know, I don't know, mania and independence and freedom and just put it in a box give it to somebody or drive it to someplace and, and get it out of your house. Cause I mean, that would obviously be good for everyone. So back to the problem when you feed humans, um, and I won't even talk about the what right now. I'll just talk about feeding people three times a day, plus snacks, plus dessert, plus peckish things at two in the morning when you don't feel like you can sleep or whatever, a very unique thing starts to happen with respect to our species evolution and our metabolism because your body is designed to store energy and use energy. And throughout most of our evolutionary past, the ability to store energy was very seasonal, right? And it was barely enough to get, you know, maybe, you know, 80% of people, at least at, you know, these kind of latitudes, um, to uh, survive being that hungry in spring. Cause a lot of people would probably spend over a month with almost nothing to eat. Right. So if you could overeat for a couple of months in the fall, you might be able to get through spring. So we all have inherently some of that aspect in our metabolism. So again, when you take humans all day, every day from the, you know, moment you can reach for your own food or coerce your parents through screaming to get what you want, which that never happens, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, then, you know, we end up with uh, this very new kind of metabolism where there's no break from the constant load of excess energy coming into the system. And, you know, given the change of going from say a a relatively, you know, play outside until dark, you know, do chores until you can't kind of human endeavor, even three, four generations ago. Now, I mean, most people sit and eat that same kind of caloric, you know, based diet plus a whole bunch of crap food, plus a whole bunch of sugar. And they sit in front of a you know, a TV or sit with a screen, you know, uh, most of the time. So not only is the, I mean, I think like foie gras where they force feed, you know, ducks to make their livers fat, (laughs) 
you know, we're, we're basically kind of like doing a, a, the same thing because if you keep eating, you're going to change a bunch of pathways in, inside how your body works. And they're, they're not super complicated. And I think I have a pretty good metaphor for how that works. But the problem is, is that we're all developing what people call metabolic syndrome, which used to be called syndrome X, which used to be called that weird thing where, you know, obese people get diabetes, heart disease and cancer and then Alzheimer's like boom, 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 boom. And, um, you know, all of these things are in a way due to the same problem, which is a constant pressure of trying to store, you know, calories, which makes people obese, which changes your metabolism in three or four other directions, which changes how you think and feel about everything, which changes your habits, usually in a more negative way, which accelerates the problem. Then you end up on in uh, symptom suppressing medications, natural or not. And then, you know, the, the SOP or your standard operating procedure of trying to imitate Homer Simpson and <laughs> to see where that goes, uh, will continue. Right. So that's actually the, the fundamental problem that intermittent fasting solves is, well, if the problem is we can't stop stuffing our faces, well, maybe we should start by stopping stuffing our faces. <laughs> I know that's like super techy and everything. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, you wanted to geek out, man. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you talk about how, um, we're just, uh, as a society, prone to uh, eat all day long, every day, all day long, snacks in between meals and, you know, munchies in front of the tube and all that sort of stuff. Um, I recently had the experience, um, I went home to see my folks. I was That's there correct. for about a week. It was like being on a cruise ship where you can't do anything but walk around with a bunch of old people and eat. And <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that image. Uh, I'm just going to go go outside for a minute. <laughs> well, it was kind of like that. <laughs> no, that's and, a great image. And, uh, you know, my parents are uh, into their mid to late uh, 80s. My dad's 89. Um, mom's uh, three years younger than that-ish. Um, anyways, um, they eat uh, by the clock. So it doesn't matter if you're hungry. It's noon. You're supposed to be sitting down to eat. Uh, breakfast is a little bit flexible, but they tend to get up extra early anyways, which I don't quite understand. Um, because yeah, those, they, those chore doing people, they still think there's something to do out there. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But, um, they will, uh, they'll, they'll have breakfast early. Then they'll have a, um, uh, a lunch at noon. When I got there, I arrived late on a Wednesday night. I get there Thursday morning. I get to the kitchen. They're already there eating their, whatever it is they're having for, for breakfast. And my butt didn't even hit the seat to, at the table to, you know, compose myself in front of the, whatever it was I wanted to eat for breakfast. And my mom says to me, so you want polenta for dinner? <laughs> I'm like, dinner, wow. <laughs> that's a whole, you know, lifetime away. Yeah, right. But that's how they think. Noon is when you eat lunch and five o'clock is when you eat dinner. And yeah, she made polenta and it was awesome. But um, only because, you know, my girlfriend was with me and she's like, polenta. And I'm like, I think that's a yes, mom. Um for them, the, the, they're, they're sort of um, unique in the fact that they don't really do a whole lot of munchy stuff during the day. And I think that's because they have this sort of regulated uh, clockwork kind of attitude around food. Um, and as well, what they eat, their you know blue zone Mediterranean diet type lifestyle dictates that they eat a whole bunch of really decent food that's satiating, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't really need to eat anymore after that. So um, now that said... You know, I was there going like, oh, a glass of wine for lunch? Sure, I'll have a glass of wine. Oh, cheese? Sure, I'll have some more cheese. You know, I gained weight for the whole week that I was there. You know, I could easily t tack on another 10 or 20 pounds on this skinny frame of mine, and it was great. Um, but when I think about how other people experience going home to visit their family, um, 
you know, I've, I've had other friends who say they go home and they just end up gaining so much weight because they just spend the whole time bent over in the fridge eating from morning until night. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a contrast, I think, to how it is you're, you're talking about this, with this idea of like giving your stomach a break, you know? Like if they, if they stop eating at five o'clock or start eating at five and they finish around six or 6.30, depending on how slow the meal goes, um, and they don't eat again until the next morning, that's probably a good thing, eh? Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, reminded of something we talked about in a couple of podcasts ago about addiction, uh, specifically with, um, you know, addiction to sugar and, and stuff like that. Um, when you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, your insulin levels obviously go up. And right. when your insulin level goes up for the first little while, uh, the ability of tryptophan and some of its, uh, I guess, post-cursors towards serotonin are more likely to fit through the blood-brain barrier. Hmm. So we get that kind of like uh, what we call comfort food because when you eat it within you know 20 to 40 minutes, you're going to be neurologically in a more satisfied and potentially more enthusiastic and positive place based on how we understand serotonin. Right. Problem is, is that there's other factors that start to minimize that fact effect. Right. So now people have to eat more and stay under the drive of high insulin levels to try and force a bit more of that process to happen. So I mean that there's no. I guess I'm just trying to say that um, although, although it's one thing to kind of poke a finger at people who tend to overdo it and just say you're a dumb, fat, you know, powerless person who wants to die, you know, that was, I don't know, maybe a bit harsh, but <laughs> I meant to be a bit harsh for the context of that. Uh, it's another way is to look at is, man, this person has altered their metabolism around their mood specifically so much that they actually will feel for probably three or four days chemically uh, a relative state of depression, like psychiatric or at least psychologically uh, dysthemic uh, dissatisfaction, you know, which can make people pretty damn sad. And, you know, that's hard to get through. And if you are used to compensatory behavior, even if it's not like hard addictive behavior, why wouldn't you go back for another set of Pop-Tarts and some orange juice or something? And Because for whatever reason, you can't stop thinking about the negative Right. And we're not even talking about the, the real big, you know, real big problem at this point. But I wanted to enter in the conversation uh, about the fact that our tendency to, you know, you know, manage away uh, at little things throughout the day is in a way parallel to what your parents are doing. Hmm. Right. Their metabolisms, you know, uh, although less harmed by their dietary choices, are also set up to the same level of satiation around hormones that have to do with hunger, but also satiation around neurotransmitters that have to do with being positive, right? So when you start changing your, your nutrient uh, intake and, and profile and ratios and things like that, obviously the first thing you're going to experience is a lack of satisfaction, hmm. right? So a lot of people, when they're trying to feel better, oh, I'm going to do something to feel better. I'm like, oh, okay, well, why don't you get fit and healthy? And people are like, but that's hell. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right, I forgot. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Right, because it's so dissatisfying at the beginning. And then there's all the metabolic ups and downs of trying to self-correct your metabolism. So as we tilt the conversation into how intermittent fasting works, uh, sort of the biomedical geek out part of like how it actually works, um, and then some insight on how to make it kind of more interesting and useful, I just really want to impress upon people that when you start changing the functionality of your physiology, that's a very unique individual process. So whatever I'm going to be talking about, and you know, however Anthony does his best to draw it out in a hopefully common sense way, 
it's still going to happen to you in, in a pretty unique way. So I'll try and cover like, you know, the bookends of where things go for people. But if you, if you're really thinking about doing this and millions of people are doing this as we speak and changing their metabolisms and their health and for some people their waistline in a very, very positive way, uh, other people are doing it because they don't want Alzheimer's and cancer, you know, different motivation, but still, um, most of us want to feel better. And at the beginning, you're going to feel hungry and grumpy and, you know, impatient and a bunch of other stuff. Um, so I'm hoping we can do a really good job at making good imagery that's convincing because that's, that's our job right now is to get you through that first three weeks, you know, not only with the medical advice, but with the perspective that, you know, you're, you're, you're diving into a, a bit of a gauntlet, you know, in the sense that, uh, you're gonna have to do some ducking and weaving to get through it. But once you get through that first three, four weeks, then you're in a really good place, unless you've got some really significant problems around obesity, prediabetes, diabetes, other kinds of uh, metabolic and endocrine situations. And it can take a bit longer, like even up to six months before you're actually literally shaking your brand new butt. Mm -hmm. You know, in the sense of I feel happy, I, I, you know, feel much better physiologically and physically and emotionally, and I look nice, you know, or, you know, you know, less of the direction I was going in. So before we dive in, I just wanted to make sure big picture, you know, we're all basically crack addict monkeys. <laughs> We've got some work to do on that. And, uh, I would honestly say, start with changing your, your, before you get into the actual mecha mechanics of, of intermittent fasting, just start eating like Anthony's mom and dad, <laughs> three meals a day, try and keep the timing relatively consistent and try and actually eat food and stick to the wall. Cause if you're going to start doing this, start there. Yeah. Give your body a chance to really just ground around less complete insane stuff. Cause honestly, you know, and I've seen this happen and I not usually in my clinic, but I know people who are kind of in the more quick, you know, not sure how to say that without sounding like a jerk. So I'll just change the subject. But, um, <laughs> I've just met a lot of patients who are very dissatisfied with the direction they got, you know, in the past of like, oh yeah, you just started the end. And then they end up, you know, very, very unhappy and mm -hmm. usually in the hospital or, you know, having to argue with their doctor about the sudden catastrophe, catastrophe of suddenly needing more or less of their pharmaceuticals. Cause I mean, if you're on a bunch of pharmaceuticals and you suddenly radically change your metabolism, well, honestly, what do you, you what do you think is going to happen to you? Your, you know, your medical, your metabolism's a robot from pharmaceuticals. You can't change it naturally without changing the robot part. This is what a train wreck sounds like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so again, before we dive into the, the what, how, and why, um, I really just want to make sure that you're, you're aware you want to start from a, an abnormal place, not from the pit of, you know, our Homer Simpson's bad weekend. <laughs> And, and, and just for the sake of, uh, I'm, I'm imagining somebody out there saying, uh, you've said it a couple of times on the, on the podcast already, um, uh, sticking to the wall. I just wanted to expand on that idea. And, um, the way I understand it, uh, you walk into a grocery or the way I was told or taught this, uh, this concept, uh, walk into a grocery store store. And if you look to your left and you look to your right, and if you follow the walls around the outside of the grocery store, that's typically where you find your whole foods, things like the produce aisle and, uh, the meat case and, uh, that sort of thing, as, as opposed to... Basically, it's plant, protein, and fat. Yeah. And if you have to sneak into one of those aisles to get some coconut oil and some dried oregano for whatever you're making tomorrow night, just go with the blinders on and try not to look at the dancing bears luring you into buying yet another box of death. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
But was that subtle enough, do you think? <laughs> I, I think you just said to people, try to avoid buying things in the middle of the grocery store, down, up and down the aisles. Mostly, yeah. It, well, and, and on that, I mean, there's a, there's a whole uh, science around the marketing of products and, uh, you know, uh, color psychology and product placement. And there's a whole bunch of different things the way a grocery store is designed to actually make you want to buy stuff um, that doesn't really happen in the same way uh, when you go into the produce aisle, short of the fact that there's this, you know, a cornucopia of oranges and bananas and like an abundance of different foods and that kind of stuff that you know never have any bruises on them uh what a waste eh? yeah it's kind of kind of silly but anyways and they, i'm just shaking my head because for some reason i just had a flashback of grade 10 business uh course i took in high school and we'd had two week unit where we had to come up with a product and for some reason me and my friend made a breakfast cereal and then you had to like make it and then make a commercial for it hmm. and we were learning all that stuff in in grade 10 wow. <laughs> well you got to choose the right colors you got to decide where the kids adults health whatever and i was just like and at the time i didn't care i was just you know right. grade 10 so <laughs> probably looking at somebody's bum but uh well, it was interesting to like just have that flashback of like wow we really are quite good at this whole you know program shopping oh yeah and dial displays and all that kind of stuff and i'll say as well that it doesn't matter what kind of grocery store you go into right it could be whole foods Whole Foods is designed to take your whole paycheck <laughs> and they really want you to buy as much groceries as you can, no different than any other grocery store uh, could, uh, which is, you know, great. You know, it's their business. They can do it the way they want to. But um, I think what Michael and I are, are on about around that, the idea of shopping around the perimeter of a grocery store is to uh, look for Whole Foods uh, as opposed to uh, prepackaged stuff, organic yeah. or whatever the heck it is. I mean, who, do you really need those? What did I see the other day? They were... Uh, coconut flakes uh, with uh, salt and lime. And I thought, oh, wow, somebody's really gaming the whole system. You got some nice fatty coconut flakes, and then you got some salt, and then you got a little bit of sour. Like, And it's this little small package, and it's only $4. Not only will that package outlive the cockroaches, but you'll have just spent $4 on something that's designed to make you want to eat to the bottom of the bag and buy another bag. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, we digress. <laughs> but I, I'm glad we actually digressed into that kind of intuitively because that's where we're, that was my point is that we're all starting kind of from behind the starting line. Like starting, the starting line would be three meals a day, plants, protein, and fat. Mm -hmm. Ideally, before you start changing it to less than three meals a day or not any meals a day, depending on the kind of fasting you're going to get into. Right. And I think it, it is also depending on, you know, the listener um, our little segue into the psychosis and psychology of, of marketing and, and why we are compelled to buy some of the things we, we do, that's going to be a part of the disquiet or the discomfort of that first three weeks is you're going to have to kind of, you know, go through the psycho-emotional, almost psychosocial act of alienating your friends. Because mm -hmm. some of those, even the, the, the moment of picking up your favorite snack food and putting it in your, your backpack or whatever you do to get it, you know, home... Yeah, I live in Canada. We put our groceries in backpacks. <laughs> it's to save the earth. Um, you know, like that's going to change. Like your your whole operating system is going to have to change. So uh, if you're like weekend warrior, badass, and you're just going to do it all at once, uh, maybe you want to make sure you have some clinician's number on your phone's Rolodex or however modern phones work. But uh, yeah, just, just be, be mindful. It, it makes a lot more sense because this is really... I think in the long term about changing your metabolism and changing your life and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So if it's going to be for the long term, why not do it gradually, step by step, enjoy the, 
you know, I don't know, the gradual divorce of what you're doing now instead of, you know, walking out the door with <laughs> your fist in the air. Cause, cause then you get a chance to, to really, you know, migrate your metabolism. And again, as I said, if you're going to do the weekend warrior thing, it's just going to be a lot harder for the first few weeks. But if you, if you appreciate that kind of, uh, discomfort as in, I don't know, a dashboard light or, uh, I don't know, thinking cheerleaders in some, I don't know, subtle thing like you can do it and you're walking around going i'm going to choke everyone but that's a little voice of you can do it then <laughs> that's how you're going to get through this but if you have some really chronic medical stuff don't don't dive in too fast because it'll you know mess you up yeah and i think we're taking a lot of care and concern to uh make listeners aware of the fact that this is a health lifestyle and mindset kind of approach to um uh, what you're talking about it isn't just oh eat these foods and you'll live to be 200 Right? I mean, it's not as simple as that. No. And as I keep going back into the warning side of my head, <laughs> um, this is not a weekend warrior thing to do. I right. mean, it is. People do it. But if you want to get a lot um, worse faster, do this for three weeks. Stop. Go back to your lifestyle that you just already just stopped. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of people, myself included, get into intermittent fasting and then you know, for whatever reason, we end up going back to, you know, an, an, another kind of caloric style of, of, of eating um, and ex not exercising and stuff like that. You know, you'd be amazed at how fast, especially if you're over 40, you get way, way worse, way, way faster. Because, you know, you, you've, you've dialed in the optimal metabolism and then you think, oh, well, I fixed my, you know, I fixed how I look in the mirror. So I'll, I'll just go back to what I was doing before. And it'll be about, it'll take you about half the time to get back to where you were bef before you started. Because your body knows how to do that. And if you're going to say, it's time to predispose how we store all that energy, it'll say, oh, okay, captain, we've, we've, we've got the room. You know, we'll, we'll fill it up right away. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a great example of this is that show The Biggest Loser. I've only seen one episode because that's as much as I could take. But, um, you know, uh, one of my mentors is, uh, um, yeah, I think his name, I'm terrible at names, Jason Fung. He's a, a kidney specialist in Toronto who focuses a lot on diabetes. And he's probably in the top 20 people on the internet right now around inter intermittent fasting and diabetes and stuff like that. He actually makes the example of, you know, if you talk to the producers of that show and say, why don't you ever see any of the contestants, you know, after the show? Well, it's because they've signed like a 92 page agreement that they will never, you know, go out of their way to be photographed in public. They will never write or make a video or an audio recording of their experience after leaving the show. They will, you know, all the stuff because, you know, and I think he puts it as why don't they have a reunion show? It's because mm. everybody's way, way worse than they actually were when they started. Wow. If not back to where they were just, you know, and that, that would be lucky if you were as out of shape as you were when you started that show, like six months after the show. Right. So just another little warning, you know, just be mindful that, you know, if you're going to do this, try and make it about your lifestyle, your mindset. And there's a lot of flexibility to how to bring this into your life. So it's not like, you know, obviously you just stop eating forever or you're only going to eat one meal a day forever. It's not about forever at all. It's about, you know, especially with this podcast, it's about how does this stuff work? You know, what are some really options and, you know, how do they fit into all of this stuff and, and how to play with that throughout your life so that it's actually going to uh, support you in the long term, because that weekend warrior thing is what gets most of us into trouble. Because we keep thinking that weekend warrior thing is going to eventually save us in the long term, and it's actually going to make going to make the situation worse. Yeah, um, all that, all that just makes me think of you're turning the Titanic. You're not turning a 
you know, a rowboat. Yep. <laughs> Takes a little bit more effort. <laughs> Slow and steady. Um, maybe the Titanic was a bad analogy, but even still. Um, okay. Uh, now that we're kind of uh, aware of the pitfalls and the foibles of actually intermittent fasting, uh, where do we go from here? You actually want to get into, into the nuts and bolts of how it nuts actually works? Bolts. So the most common kind of intermittent fasting is to eat two meals a day, say lunch and supper. Right. So, I mean, that's a pretty easy thing. You just drop bre breakfast and uh, add a bit more to lunch and supper. Cause the idea of intermittent fasting isn't about calorie restriction. It's about changing your metabolism. Right. So let's just say that you and I, um, this is usually what I do, but you and I have decided to go on this adventure. Uh, I'm going to describe in the most general sense what's happening. So, you know, you and I have lunch and we're now we're in what's called a fed state. It takes about four hours to go from a fed state, which means your body's breaking things down to an assimilated state, which means you've taken all those broken down nutrients, turned them into something you can use as an actual sort of cellular metabolite or nutrient or calorie in the sense of, uh, say glucose or fat or protein that are being used in that way. And, uh, then it becomes completely assimilated. So it's about seven, you know, eight hours from the moment you eat a meal to the point where you no longer have the, the effect of that meal doing any more benefit for you. Like it's all basically put on the shelf and, you know, put in the bank and uh, stored as a battery, you know, in the sense of energy. So, you know, that's lunch, but we're going to probably have lunch at around noon or one and then dinner around five or six. So now it's six o'clock and we're eating again and we're no longer in a fed state, but we're still in that assimilative state. And now we're back in a fed state and in an assimilative state from dinner and lunch. Um, once you're, you know, got through your lunch completely and you're going through that assimilative state, um, say from like 10 in, in the evening till about two and three in the morning. Now about two, three in the morning, you're lying there and you have no more. Everything has been put on the shelf, put in the bank or put in the battery so that, um, you know, that's all your body can do with it. So now you're technically in a fasted state. Hmm. Right. Okay. Cause that's what the word means as fasted and, you know, fasting, obviously that, I mean, if we're going to talk about starving, we'd be talking about starving, right? And that's a very different thing. So in a fasted state, you know, you, you're from say three in the morning till you have breakfast at say eight or something like that. And you know, you're, that's a five hour window in which your body no longer requires a whole bunch of uh, hormones and other things, especially insulin to uh, actively mobilize those nutrients and, you know, put them where they're supposed to go. And that's actually why we call breakfast to break the fast. Right. Right. Cause you're functionally doing that. So if you and I are skipping breakfast, we'll be staying in a fasted metabolic state, which is like a biochemical Jedi thing from two, three in the morning until say 1 PM. Right. So that's over, let's say averaging 10 to 11 hours a day where now our metabolism has to do something completely different because we're not adding. So now all of that material that's been put into storage has to find a way to be relieved from the storage process and then used as energy, uh, for that period of time. Um, before you get too far with that, the idea that just popped into my head is what about the kind of people who don't necessarily eat breakfast, uh, but they'll have a cup of coffee or something like that. Uh, is that still, uh, keeping within that, um, uh, fast if you're just ingesting something like that, or does that actually... In a way, Monkey with things? in a way, but in a way, no. So this is, this is where it's going to get a bit muddy, but we're going to, the, the water will get clear pretty quick. Okay. So if I was to have a coffee or something in the morning and I had some cream and sugar in it or 
honey as I would, um, not only is the act of smelling and being in the kitchen and uh, actually swallowing things going to produce a, uh, a really unique uh, signal in a unique part of the brain that actually does by itself produce what we call a flush or a blush of insulin through your system. So although you're not eating food, your, you know, primate mammal body that's in a kitchen swallowing food naturally wants to prepare itself for the next thing, which is, oh, I guess I'm going to be fed, mm-hmm. like in a fed state and then an assimilative state and then, you know, on and on. So in the sense of pure metabolic control, uh, of intermittent fasting around correcting something. No, no coffee, no coffee. And then you talk to the other people who are like, uh, kind of in the ketogenic world, but don't really know what they're talking about, uh, in, 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 in the way that you'd, you'd kind of want them to, uh, they're all saying, well, you could do a bulletproof coffee instead. So now you're getting some calories, but they're not fat or they're not a carbohydrate or protein. So there's really no way in which your body would need insulin. And that's true in one way, but it's not true in another way. So I would say it's about 80% true, 20% not. And for some people who are in a, in a very precarious place, that 20% is enough to stop it from working. And again, mm-hmm. this gets complicated, but it'll, it'll get clear in a bit. So, uh, ideally it's two meals a day, breakfast, lunch, lunch, supper. You're not restricting calories. So it's a bigger lunch supper. Uh, the hard part is after supper is to find anything else to do with yourself than to put stuff in your face. <laughs> mm-hmm. And same thing in the morning, you know, if you're going to, I actually, I was doing a lecture and a medical student asked, uh, asked me this even a few months ago, um, you know, should you even go into the kitchen, you know, if you're trying to do this thing, uh, because, you know, you're going to get that uh, neurological bloom of, of insulin just in case you're going to eat anything. And I was saying, that's a really good question. And I think over time, your body metabolically would just recognize the kitchen is not for you. But I would definitely say if you're sitting at a table with four other people and they're having breakfast and you're not, you're probably not going to get the results you want because of the smell and the social cue and all the other stuff. So, um, you know, just try to try and try and give yourself permission to just take it a little bit more hardcore, at least at the beginning, because you really want to control, this is really about insulin control fundamentally. Okay. So if, if people are doing this, um, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have lunch and I'm going to have dinner and breakfast, nothing. And I do that for one, two, three days. And on the third day, it's like, well, maybe I'll just have something a little small for breakfast. Is having something small a way for somebody to sort of step into the whole idea of doing something, uh, uh, completely eliminating a breakfast if they're, they're wanting to do this? Like, is there a way that you can gradually sort of um, build your fortitude around the idea of not actually even having a breakfast? I, I would say if you really want to get some results, you have to do this once for 24 days minimum. Okay. But you still didn't answer the question. Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> so there's something we're trying to fix. Right. Right. And I I could get into the the sort of symbolic details, which we probably should, but until you've solved that one weird, really weird problem, anytime you have three meals a day, your body will default back to woohoo, Homer Simpson. Okay. Right. But it takes about 24 days of being really strict and consistent to change something uh, that has to do with how your liver releases glycogen. Right. Because it, it's, if it's never had to do this on, off, on, off, you know, all day, every day, because you've been eating all day, every day, it's, the, I often, when I 
do lectures, I have a picture on my little slide of a skeleton covered in cobwebs at a train uh, switch station where he's trying to switch the tracks, but he's a skeleton covered in cobwebs because he hasn't had to move in 20 years because all you've been doing is, you know, stuffing your face. So, <laughs> you know, his job of, oh, I should release the glycogen, <laughs> release the hounds, you know. Um, anyway, uh, so it takes about 24 days. And honestly, man, like, if you're listening to this, well, you obviously are, if you're listening to this or hearing me talk, that was a little feedback loop. Um, you really have to stick it out. Mm -hmm. You really do. Cause it will be f so frustrating if you don't. Okay. Right. But if you can get through that first 24 days and, uh, the reason I brought this up is from day 21 to 24, you're going to want to freak out a little bit because your body will just, this, this whole idea of neuroplasticity is not just in your brain. Your entire metabolism is stubborn. So if it's saying, hey man, there's no way I want to do this. And it's time to like, you know, the liver skeleton is mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> it takes like three days to put some meat back on the liver, you know, skeleton's bones to, to move that switch back and forth fluidly again. So once you're through that period of time, what I would recommend and what I do myself is usually one day a, a week, usually today, actually on Sunday, I'll go out and have a big brunch. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm training regularly, if I'm not training, then I won't do that because then I'll just, you know. I'm 50. It's just going to, you know, end up on my bum or something. But, um, but, but, um, uh, that's, that's a recommendation most people have in the long term is, is, uh, six days a week, two meals a day, and you're not starving yourself for calories. Focus on obviously whatever's therapeutic for your actual deeper health concerns. And, uh, once a week, just give yourself a chance to make sure you haven't hurt a couple of other, you know, switches and pathways that in the long term could actually cause some problems. And so you, the, the idea of, of uh, intermittent fasting isn't just doing it one day a week. You're, this, you're suggesting that this is something that somebody does with their um, their everyday food routines. Well, then yes and no. So intermittent fasting, as I said, the most common way it's practiced is two meals a day. Some people, it's one meal a day. Uh, some people have two meals a day. Some people just have one really big one. And then some people will skip one day a week. And then some people will skip... Uh, two or three days a month or two or three days a season. And then some people uh, will say maybe do 10 days of a fast for 10 days just on water or maybe a bit of broth and a pinch of salt and seaweed uh, for 10 days. And I've done that myself. And that's an incredibly invaluable experience to have, I think, um, just on a, a, the personal level of getting to know yourself around, you know, if you tend to fidget or if you tend to look outside of yourself for ways to quell your, you know, inner demons and, and stuff like that. So when we say intermittent fasting, there's at least, you know, well, there's probably an infinite way, you know, more ways to do it. But the main things people that, that I work with do, or that I would recommend people do is try the two meals a day thing when you feel like your metabolism is stable enough for that. If you feel like you want to really push it, do one big meal a day for a while. And there's a guy who actually has a whole book out on that. I think he calls it the warrior diet. Um, then again, they're skipping one day a week and they're skipping four days once in a while or once a season. I'd say that would be like an ideal thing to do. And then there's longer fasts, like, you know, 10 days. And this is where it gets a little bit whacked for people because I think we all have consumed passively information like, I don't know, the the Jesus went to the uh, desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights or something like that. Um, that, that's, that's a pretty, uh, doable thing actually to have no food for 40 days besides like a bit of broth or something like that. And there was one person and I haven't researched this enough to really get into the details of it, but there was one person who fasted for, I believe it was 379 days. 
because I know they got over a year, but it wasn't much. And the way they did that was by taking some across-the-spectrum nutritional supplements for vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and a few other things. But that person lived for over a year without food. Uh, wow. And it, did that person um, turn into like a speck of dust at the end of that time? Like, I mean, And that's why I bring it up, is that unless you have certain metabolic problems, your body will protect your body from starvation by hitting a hibernation-like metabolism. Sure, you're going to be, you know, moving kind of slow mm-hmm. and probably wanting to avoid sudden changes in temperature and a whole bunch of other things. But, um, you know, people used to get through this outside <laughs> trying to like find food, right? So uh, we're definitely physiologically capable of, of doing this, you know, at least from an ancestral perspective, but I wouldn't recommend it. So I'm just saying that when it comes to fasting, we, we, we're probably capable of way more than we think we are. I'm not suggesting more than 10 days ever, honestly. I just want people to take the, the sphincter that's going, ah, and I'll turn into like that skeleton kind of guy. It's like, well, actually, no, if you're relatively healthy, then a 10-day fast or more wouldn't make you disappear. However, very quickly, if you do have certain metabolic conditions, fasting for any more than a day or two might be a really bad idea. Hmm. <laughs> I've got this idea I just want to share here. Whenever I watch action adventure movies, um, I don't know, like a James Bond movie or something like that, I always think, you know, it's like, oh, the bad guy's over there in Moscow and we're here in Virginia. We got to do something about that. And then, you know, in the next scene, he's in Moscow. I always think, did he even sleep or eat? Did he even poop yet? <laughs> like, you know, if I don't have a poop in the morning, I'm not, I'm a pretty grumpy guy. What about right. James Bond? Does You're he right. poop in the morning? <laughs> I always think of that kind of stuff. Right. Like the, the, the sort of a suspension of disbelief uh, around Hollywood um, is huge for me because the way that I eat and the way that I compose myself around whatever it is I do in the kitchen with food is totally different. And then it brushes up against the reality or I'm making air quotes around reality that I see on the screen. And I always think, Nah, I wonder if he ate anything. He must have not have eaten anything. Like, he, okay, he just had to have flown there, but airline food really sucks. Like, how does he do it? Look at him, look at him beat that bad guy up. What did he eat for breakfast? And since we've digressed into the whack weirdness of, of the credibility of entertainment, uh, there was an author, I, I can't remember his name, but uh, I like audiobooks, so sometimes I'm looking at audiobooks, and then the, uh, it's not a testimonial, but like how someone responds to reading it. Hmm. And there was a, somebody who tried to do that. They made it a point because they had the same, you know, imagination that you do. All In all their books, the action hero peed and masturbated and pooped and ate and washed and shaved and did everything. That must have been like war and peace thick. Oh, yeah. And it drove everyone who tried to read his books crazy because they were like the minutia of detail. I don't even remember what the story's about. Yeah. Because if, obviously, if you added everything that a person did, did to the day, the 15 minutes of the day they were battling the bad ninjas was kind of like. <laughs> and another thing, who does his laundry? <laughs> right. You know, he gets there and he's still impeccably dressed. <laughs> he's got that fancy watch. How does he do that? And the OCD comes up finally. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I didn't eat breakfast. <laughs> okay. Um, put some food in the fridge. <laughs> it's actually food. But, you know, I, I, I just think of that, but. Um, I think that there must be something to uh, that whole idea. Like, you know, if I try to rationalize this crazy idea that I have that, you know, movie stars don't eat, action-adventure movie stars don't eat, that maybe some of them actually don't eat. And that actually well, gives a lot of them... them probably l- don't because they look pretty damn good on the screen. Well, right? and, 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 and that maybe that, that, that sort of gives him more energy to do things, right? He's not sitting there, you know, trying to digest that ham salad or chicken salad sandwich from, you know, a crappy flight. And I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, that's... <clears throat> 
that's sort of the one of the fundamental things is, although you know the way you said it was, wouldn't he have you know more more energy because he didn't have this big lump of you know junk in his stomach? Uh, that's a big part of this too, because when you refine your energy storage and, and release and delivery kind of systems, you do have abundant energy and uh, clarity of thought, and your hormonal uh, endocrine background. Uh, ratios are optimal for your age and there's all these other things that happen and I mean there's a lot of geek out stuff to get into here so we're gonna probably have to dive in you know now but uh, it, it is an incredible thing to notice how much better we do mm -hmm. when we're not constantly fed yeah well the the, the word that I have always experienced because for years I suffered around food allergies and sensitivities and all that kind of stuff. I'd eat food and I'd be like in a food coma instantly, or I'd eat food and my nose would be running or my hands would be itching or my legs would be itching, whatever it is. Um, I always felt like, um, if I didn't eat something, my body would just be going, thanks man. <laughs> and then just carrying on with whatever it needed to do. Right. And, and as we get into some details, the most operant, uh, way of using fasting for immune problems is to just fast for three days. Hmm. Because once, once you take what's called secretory IgA, which is sort of the frontline tattletale of the mucosal membrane of your gut and say, yeah, we're just going to stop pissing that guy off. Uh, your whole, the rest of your immune system stops getting the kind of message or the tattletale of like, everything's wrong out here. So the immune system downregulates like an action movie from, oh my God, to we're all friends again. Very cool. Yeah. So but anyway, just there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways to apply this. And in fact, it's the most effective, I haven't said this yet, but fasting in all the different ways that could be applied specifically and medically to solve medical problems is easily the most effective tool we have as, as an entire species. Yeah. Well, I've always thought that if, um, um, if I don't know what I'm doing enough that I'm actually sticking something in me that doesn't work, I'm just gonna, I always used to joke. It's like, okay, body take over. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. <laughs> it's like, you got this all figured out. You know how to heal cuts and wounds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, see if you can do something with my stomach. Okay. Yeah. And fasting is the best way to give your body a chance to yeah. run the ship. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, that you wanted to get into the geek out, uh, where, uh, what, how do you want to do that? So this is really all about energy systems. Okay. And, uh, even with, if we had the video and I was fiddling around with PowerPoint stuff, it would still be hard to really go as far as, you know, obviously we could go. So I'm going to try and find a, a good middle ground around the kind of medical terminology and, and stuff. Um, hopefully this is going to work. So, um, imagine that, you know, human beings for whatever reason, uh, are metaphysically a lot like, uh, boats, big boats, boats with engines, boats with sails, boats that go for a really long time because the idea is about energy systems and storage. So let's say that, um, you know, as a boat, one energy system that we have would be a solar panel to run things like your running lights. Because if you're on the ocean, you want to have lights so people don't crash into you. Uh, that solar panel will trickle into the big batteries that can run the engine of the ship if it has to, but it's meant to just run, you know, general stuff all the time. Just keep, keep the ship kind of, you know, bumping along. And that would be basically a metaphor for uh, glycogen or how your body stores sugar in a very easy to use, you know, quick release kind of way. It's just always there for you. And then, uh, in the bottom of the big boat is a big, huge deck of batteries and that batteries are there just in case the big diesel engine that actually runs the, the boat, you know, in the sense of powering across the ocean, uh, ever doesn't have the energy to work. Right. Cause that's important. So, 
you know, as the, the batteries fill up, you know, that's basically at a threshold in which your body wants to add more batteries. And in this magical weird boat, well, you can add batteries as fat. And the reason why I, I use this analogy is, um, this whole thing is just about energy storage, energy release. But if you're going to want to store the batteries, then, um, you know, you have to keep adding more fuel to run the engine, to store big batteries and more batteries and more batteries. And that's basically going from insulin helping your body store glucose as glycogen to your body having so much glucose and energy that your liver actually starts storing the energy uh, intermediately as glycogen and then triglycerides, and then it turns into fat or those big batteries. So in order, and the reason why I use this analogy is once you're in a situation where you want to get rid of some batteries or get rid of some adipose tissue or fat, you have to turn the engine on and have the engine running from the batteries, not from the gas to drive like the, the engine that drives the, 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 the propeller, right? Mm -hmm. So the only way that works is to reverse the system and to keep the, the solar panels and all the other systems that are going to add to the big batteries in a trickle way. Uh, you just have to stop doing that. So if you're not, if you're not adding calories, uh, unnecessarily to your system and you're shifting the engine over from storage to run the propeller off the batteries, then you can effectively keep losing weight. Now, there's a lot going on around this um, that, that gets a bit more complicated because, you know, the boat analogy is great because we can say, oh yeah, little battery, big battery, energy in, energy out. You know, there, there's, there's a bunch of switches that have to happen to make that work. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's a nice simple way to look at it, but subjectively as people, you're also dealing with the fact that symptomatically things are going to get better or worse um, faster or slower based on hormonal signaling more than just what you eat. Hmm. Right. And some of those hormones determine your behavior, right? Uh, we, the word cortisol is uh, what's called a glucocorticoid, which means its job is to release glucose. So if your body feels like it needs a little bit of a quick hit, um, of energy, and this happens to a lot of people at three o'clock in the morning, uh, your body will secrete enough cortisol to dump enough glucose in or gl glycogen into glucose so that your brain isn't starving for blood sugar at night, which is again, why a lot of people wake up at that time of night. And that, that's like a mild irritation. But if you're looking at someone who's much more hypoglycemic, um, their experience of trying to switch those batteries around from snack, snack, solar, solar, quick, quick, to wait until the big engine flips over and runs the whole boat off a completely different system, their hypoglycemia can turn them into, you know, someone who could potentially actually end up killing someone. There's a kind of hypoglycemia called a reactive hypoglycemia. It's actually in the DSM or the book of psychiatric illness where you might end up killing someone and becoming psychotic. Wow. Right. So you're not just dealing with food in, food out. You're dealing with a bunch of hormones that determine your state of being, your mood, your memory, uh, your physical energy status, like muscle. Like if, you know, you work in a job where you have to pick things up and put it down, you, you can't just, so I'll, I'll just do what, you know, Dr. Smith said about you know, not eating breakfast and like, oh, well, I'll just assume I have all my other ducks and hormones and switches in a row. And that's uh, rarely, rarely true, especially today, because most people grew up on breakfast cereal and snacks, snack food, right? So another tricky thing has to do um, not only with like being hypoglycemic, which I think most of us are pretty intuitively aware of. Um, there are other deeper hormones like uh, ghrelin and leptin, and they basically tell you when you're hungry and when you're full. 
And if you're a person who keeps adding to the big batteries, so you're always full, always full, but your body um, is trying to regulate some of the other functions of those hormones, it'll keep secreting them until you become resistant to the message. And one of the most common things we see in obese people is called leptin resistance, where you've been in a fed state basically 24-7 for so long that um, the secretion of leptin has been constant for so long that any chance for regulation um, is going to be almost impossible because now the leptin has been so high for so long the receptors are saying, I can't hear the message anymore. You're just not loud enough. And there's no way... Well, I mean, you could imagine that, well, if I ate like at a buffet five times a day, maybe I'd get my leptin high enough for me to stop feeling hungry. Yep. But now tomorrow you have to eat how many times at the buffet to not feel hungry? Hmm. Five times, right? So we end up in this really vicious cycle of being trapped in um, the intense physiological experience of hunger or confusions around hunger and satiation, because we've basically broken one of the most primary adaptive systems around that whole process, right? So now you're constantly hungry, but you eat way more than you need to, and you can physically see what it's doing to you. But on a sort of deep rooted, instinctual, physical, somatic level, you're starving. You, you can't not feel like you're starving. You know, when you talk all about that, you know, so if I can just paraphrase what you're saying, sure. you know, the, the, the whole idea of fasting is basically giving the body to reset to a more, um, well, not to a more, to a, uh, a natural way of actually involving itself with food and calories and, and life, right? You're just saying, uh, hey body, I'm not going to overload you with anything. You're just going to run all the normal switches and controls and do what you need to do instead of actually all these broken coping mechanisms. Problem is, is that they're already broken. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is yeah, it so it, that if you tried intermittent fasting right away, it would just you'd go insane? Well, what I was going to ask is: is there um, is there anybody that intermittent fasting um, wouldn't work for, even if they did it over time? Uh, well, I would say there's people who it's not safe for. Okay, like people with kidney disease, um, certain kinds of brain injuries, a few other things, um, but. Yeah, I guess the point is, is that when you have broken systems, you have to repair them basically by committing them through stubbornness to change. Right. Right. So one, one uh, metaphor, and I don't, I usually use a chart for this, but humans have a metabolism for feasting, right? Overeat in the fall, store it as fat. And then we have another kind of metabolism for, again, fasting, you know, where in the spring we would be turning all of that, those batteries or that fat into to fuel. Uh, or energy. And then there's a more fundamental metabolism we call foraging, which is constantly kind of, well, not constantly, but being mobile most of the day and eating small amounts throughout the day. Because the only way to break leptin resistance is foraging, hmm. right? But convincing those people to stay physically active in a gentle but consistent way and to reduce their calories gradually and consistently over time until the whole thing kind of hits this. And they, the most common complaint for, from people is it's just so dry and boring and, and you know, you're just, you have to grind through like six months of actually getting to the point where your metabolism starts to actually like the sun comes through the clouds and the hormones start to talk to each other again. So in, in some of those situations, you're dealing with things that are, you know, trickier because the system is in, in a very deranged place. And uh, a very similar but very different situation is for anyone over 40 or 50, because now your body is changing fundamentally the way it reads and uses energy because our species, for some reason, thinks that we're supposed to specialize. 
right? Specialize. In getting better at stuff. Okay. So for whatever reason, and as we feel physiologically age, we lose, I think between 40 and 60, about 20% of our actual functional cellular muscle mass. Hmm. Right. So that's a 20% drop in your ability to burn calories and regulate a whole bunch of hormones like insulin and a whole bunch of other stuff just goes sideways. Uh, the effect of high insulin on growth hormone, I mean, that's one of the biggest benefits of uh, intermittent fasting is, you know, you can't repair tissue, you can't excite a metabolism to even burn off stored energy if you don't have the right ratio of insulin to growth hormone, right? So if, if you can get your insulin down through intermittent fasting and that growth hormone can come up and again, you, you this is your average bear, not your super over the top, you know, committed for 50 years to overeating bear. Um, they might swing back out of it in, in that way. So, uh, yeah, once you're over 40, this becomes a much more important thing to, I would say, invest, um, some research into and, and some experiments into, because now you're, you're dealing with a body that actually needs more growth hormone. It needs more, uh, DHEA than cortisol. It needs more, uh, BDNF or brain drive neurotropic factor, um, to keep you neurologically bright and young. And all of those are dependent on all of those hormones. They're dependent on something like proper eating or intermittent fasting. And again, there's lots of different ways to do it. So as long as you're giving your body a chance to turn off, you know, all of the add energy to the batteries and add batteries to the batteries, over time it will self-correct and you'll get back to the size of batteries or amount of adipose tissue that metabolically you're supposed to have. And that also kind of pisses people off because your metabolic weight may not be your ideal bath, uh, bathing suit weight. Right, what people think they should look like versus what the body says, hey, this is you. Yeah, because if we were to say, let's put you on the optimal human, you know, regimen of food, exercise, sleep, and everything else, you'll end up looking like the way that, you know, your genes actually assume you're supposed to, hmm. right? And if you want to look different than that, then you're going to have to start shoving uh, uh, certain things in the system to force it, you know, to, to move to... Um, you know, you would look and feel more or less the way you could force yourself to look and feel, but then it would take that, uh, those choices, uh, of, of eating and exercise, uh, as kind of a weekly commitment. Okay. If I want to look this much differently than my genetics think I'm supposed to look at 55, well, it looks like I'm going to be in the gym three times a week and doing intermittent fasting and, you know, maybe doing a three day fast once or twice or three or four times a year, depending on what you're into, because we have to keep self-correcting, right? And, and there's, there's some other, you know, deep, weird epigenetic, genetic things that are going on, um, that have to do with the fact that we're all basically damaged on a genetic level now from, you know, our childhoods of eating things out of boxes full of sugar. I mean, that's never happened before. You know, that's fundamentally changed the sensitivity, the responsiveness, the ability to manufacture abundant different hormones. Because once you've taught your body, you know, what you think it's supposed to do, it'll try and keep doing that. This is actually one of the first things we learned in what's called Yang Sheng Fa, which is the nourishing principles of life, you know, in the sense of preventative medicine and Chinese medicine, is your internal organs form between, you know, the time you're about two years old and the time you're 10. And whatever you did to yourself or whatever, you know, however you grew up in the sense of lifestyle, that's what your body's used to. So for you to do anything else than that uh, means that they're going to have to work hard to kind of shift. And that teaching makes sense from an ancient cultural perspective, because basically you're saying, you know, again, from that culture's perspective, you were probably raised by parents who weren't complete, you know, idiots. So they probably tried to raise you as a healthy young person. So I think the kind of the, 
the meaning and the the subtle message behind that that teaching is, you know, raise your kids properly, and then they have a reason to keep going back to that because there's that ten year rule. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm sorry, you know, you're you're gonna have to eat better because that's the way your organs are used to to living. So it's almost like a culturally implicit thing that says, look, you know, you you have to take care of yourself. Yeah, because it, 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 it's never happened before that the first ten years in your life are going to be a complete nightmare of you know craziness. It makes me think if the onus of health was on um, my caregivers uh, during that age, that whatever happens after that, uh, I'm ultimately responsible for. That would be an interesting thing, but that would change the dynamic of our society in a very positive way, I think, because now that we have to make sure that all families that can't feed their kids can feed their kids. (laughs) Right. Well, but but I'm speaking specifically (laughs) to this uh, Chinese uh, perspective that you're just sharing there, that that sort of... um, you know, if I can uh, graciously put that out there or gently put that out there, that, you know, isn't it interesting that um, how it is, you know, I'll speak personally, how it is that I compose myself around uh, my food choices and my lifestyle choices and all that sort of stuff for me have always been based on the crappy experience I had when I was a kid, right? It's like as a kid, I was eating whatever it is my mom was feeding me at the end of a, uh, end of a shovel, you know, here, have some more pasta, have some more wheat, have some more things that don't necessarily work for you and some cheese. You know, my dad occasionally throwing me a glass of wine. <laughs> um, not that that was bad food by by any means, but it was just what my body couldn't do with it that was bad. Mm-hmm. And so based on that perspective, I've been driven by the whole of my life to actually be a little bit more diligent and deliberate around whatever it is that, you know, for, for a lot of years, you know, I walked into a grocery store with my with my fists up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It was a fight, right? Um, and, you know, I think I've shared this before, that in some... Uh, kind of strange way that um uh life of learning is what sort of led me to sit down in front of a microphone (laughs) with you to record a podcast right um so it's it's interesting that uh this this chinese perspective talks about how uh health is inherently there um and that um there's an opportunity to do something with that uh in a more mature way as an adult yeah and the reason i think i shifted the meaning of that over to kind of a folk medicine affirmation is that I'm sure there's a lot of people who listen to our podcast who are saying, oh, that's not medically accurate at all. Your organs don't form around the ten feet. You can blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, that's, it wasn't probably actually about that. It was more probably about, um, a way to keep people in midlife from going off the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nowadays we're seeing the nightmare, um, version of, of that idea, which is, well, it turns out it does matter what the first 10 years of your life, are, of your life are like, although we may not have a lot of research on exactly what that looks like in the long term, because now you're 40 years old and, and you're trying to get your metabolism back to the way you thought it could have been in your 20s, but you overdid it, you know, between, you know, zero and, you know, 15 or whatever. And uh, you're wondering why your metabolism won't suddenly just go back to normal. It's because it was formed around your childhood. So if you're going to try and fix it, you're going to have to fix you and then you're gonna have to fix what happened to you in your childhood and then you're gonna have to spend the rest of your life steering your barge or your titanic up up into the wind to push against the momentum of you going back to the metabolism you had because of those first 10 years you know we've been talking about i guess the you know to use your words the, the geek out aspect of what this all is um in terms of you know what the body does and all the benefits of that sort of stuff uh, I'm imagining uh, listeners out there going, yeah, okay, well, that's all well and good, but how the hell am I going to do that? You know, like the, the, the sort of emotional or the sort of, um, uh, you know, roadblocks that we, we throw up for ourselves um, 
Do you want to address that? Is there any sort of ideas that you want to share around how we can think differently around uh, taking this on as sort of a health tonic, uh, hmm. the idea of fasting? Well, I'll share a quick story. So I do these cleanse courses two, three times a year. And um, so I'm in a room with people and they're committed and they're invested in it and they're going through taking questionnaires and self-evaluating and then committing to things. And there's always the one person in the room who just complains or just asks like relentless questions. And in a way they're great to have in the room because they're, you know, like the, uh, soundboard for everybody else. Cause they're the first person to kind of go chirp every time a new idea pops into the conversation. Right. Okay. And there was this one person who was just like actually freaking out at the idea of moving into an intermittent fasting protocol. And, um, you know, it was, I'd warn people, okay, we're gonna do this in about two weeks. So this next week we're going to do this. And then, then the week after that, we're going to do this so that when we get into the fasting, you know, it'll be a little bit easier for you. And she was just like, like, just like rocking in her chair, just like, I'm going to go insane. I can just tell. And then week three of, of that part of the process, you know, we all get together again. And, uh, you know, I'm looking around at all these faces. I'm going, okay, so how did your week of intermittent fasting go? And then all of a sudden, you know, part of my brain is like, oh, what about her? And I look over and she's got this big poop eating grin in her face. And I'm like, how are you doing? And we're, the whole room is just expecting her to spend five minutes like, you know, because that, that was kind of the big hairstyle of, of who she is, right? And, and uh, you know, she just said, I kicked its ass. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe that I haven't eaten breakfast in six days and I couldn't even tell. <laughs> What's the next thing? Bring it on. <laughs> wow. So for the people who are like in, in that mind space of what could go wrong and everything else is going to go wrong and oh my God, you're built for this. Hmm. Unless you have some really, really ornery, significantly, you know, tricky medical stuff going on, this is the best thing you could ever do. The hard part is that we're all basically... And I mean this with humor and, you know, community kind of mindedness. We're all crack addict monkeys. You know, we all can't stop doing what we can't stop doing until we stop doing it. Hmm. And it's the stupidest thing I've ever said in the sense <laughs> of like, ooh. <laughs> They're my t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, right. But that, I mean, it's, it's that, it's that simple, at least mechanically. The, the thing that I think most of us need is, um, accountability. Do it with friends, do it with family members. Uh, mentoring, find some people online who have the right sense of humor and the right kind of videos or the right whatever to, to keep you kind of feeling experimental and, 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 and befriended by the possibilities instead of haunted by the potential consequences. Cause it, life is like that. I mean, you know, if I, if I made the, the laundry list of, you know, my health concerns and what I've done wrong and you know, what I should try and repair karmically or whatever, I, I think I would just want to crawl into a cave somewhere and go, ah. hmm. whereas if I go, you know, how would it feel to change my life positively in this way over this period of time to just see what happens? Right. Well, now I'm back in, I don't know, but I'm curious and I'm willing to find out because that's the only state in which you're going to be willing to find out. And I know that's again, really kind of, I haven't said anything like Ooh, it's more like he keeps saying the obvious stuff. <laughs> if you listen, he just keeps saying, obviously, you just need to do it. <laughs> but the hard, hard part for a lot of us is that the mind has, and I know we're getting past an hour here, but since this is a mindset podcast too, I'm going to throw out a really weird image. Lay it on me. <clears throat> so you know how uh, hot air balloons have a little basket underneath of them? Mm -hmm. So we're going to imagine that your head's a hot air balloon, but for some reason, the basket's sitting on top of your head. And now the basket is a bungee jumping, you know, business. 
<laughs> and every one of your ideas is a customer for bungee jumping. Okay. So some of your ideas are really good. Like, oh, I'm going to see if I can come up with a new mousetrap. And that bungee cord, you know, goes as far as your ability to think about most traps can go. And maybe you're going to come up with one and I'll, you know, buy it at the hardware store next time I have to deal with mice. Most of the time though, and maybe it's just me, but most of the time, the little guys on my head that are bouncing off the, the little basket into the land of bungee cord experiments are the ones that have to do with consequences or how bad things can get or how bad my life could be or how my, you know, foibles can turn into the end of a relationship or how, you know, we're really good at taking little adventures of, of thought and time, like a bungee cord stretching out as far as, you know, we can stretch it out. And depending on your personality, your upbringing, the trauma you have, again, mentoring and, and curiosity and patience, the volume of, of your mental, you know, leaps in, into the future are usually going to be about how bad. Mm -hmm. So you either have to shorten up the bungee cords on purpose or start hiring people to start taking some leaps in other directions. Yeah. Because, I mean, and it's, it's a bit visual, but often visual things give people something to actually occupy the more verbal part of the mind, right? So they're like, oh, how would that look? And then you're, 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 you've broken something. Like, just like we talk about kids in 10 years and organs forming around habit. Now we're shifting something about your noggin, about the way you actually think about things. Because it requires your positive influence, your curiosity, your patience, your chutzpah or whatever the word is for, you know, keeping it together. Um, for the period of time it's going to take you to get there. And, and the only one of us that's going to make those positive imagines, imaginations balance your negative imaginations is you and the business and then the bungee cord business on your head. Knowing what I know now around food and diet, especially after doing this podcast with you for a number of years, health and lifestyle mindset, uh, I often wish I could go back in my own timeline and, uh, give me a journal and say, write down what you ate and then write down how you felt yeah, and uh, do that for a year and catalog how you eat and catalog how you feel. And f by feel, I mean how, you, how I actually interacted with the world. Uh, was I happy? Was I sad? Was I uh, pissed off or was I uh, happy-go-lucky or just, you know, what my, just my disposition was? Um, because I, I know now and the older I get, I guess the more romantic the memory is of what it was like when I was a kid. Um, romantic in that I'm sort of generalizing, you know, foggy, uh, kind of lens on that. But the idea that I have of how I was as a kid was not happy a lot. I was kind of depressed and all this kind of stuff. And I knew, I knew that what I was eating was actually affecting how I was being. And I only know that because I have the perspective of how I live now mm -hmm. and how it is I eat now and my emotional state now. And so I, I have this kind of like, loose idea that that's actually true for me, but I would love to have actually had this sort of catalog that I could actually go back and go, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know what? When I eat food these days and this is how I feel, well, how did I do that when I was a kid? Oh, oh wow. Look, there's an actual difference. So I, I've talked to friends of mine about that. Uh, you know, you know, sort of say, hey, you know what? You want to you wanna change how you think and feel around food? Well, why don't you write down what you're thinking and feeling about whatever it is you're eating? Yeah. I mentioned this in the podcast about addiction. If you want to start breaking your habits around addiction, get your bottle of, you know, poison as the expression goes, sit down in a, you know, you're, you're going to sit down and have a drink or whatever. But before you're allowed to do that, you have to journal for 20 minutes about why you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So based on what you said, uh, I feel like I want to finish this up in a way, but in, in a way that's hopefully going to 
add one more detail or two, but bring the conversation back to where it really needs to land. Sure. So talking about bungee cords and like ideas and, and how we feel nowadays and, and especially people, you know, and I feel partially responsible for this because, um, nowadays people are naturally listening to these podcasts because we've come to this weird, precarious kind of science game of if I can make sure I have the right hormones and neurotransmitters, I'll feel better. And that's true in a way. So, and I'm going to come back to that, but I want to throw a little wrench in the middle to make a point. So we're talking about fasting because we're talking about a problem and the problem is diabetes or syndrome X or metabolic syndrome because our entire species, at least in, in the developed world, is getting sicker and sicker and sicker because we can't stop stuffing our faces with crap. As you get bigger in the sense of obesity, your hormonal uh, profile changes in the sense you become more inflammatory and more estrogen dominant for the most part, right? There's always exceptions. Estrogen changes the way your brain uses energy, hmm. right? So in the sense of thinking, feeling, and everything like that, we all have to try and find, I, I, I hope, a, a place of... I know it's like getting out of prison or something like that, a place of going, okay, the rules are maybe not really, really against me here, but I have to do my time because until your adipose tissue drops enough that your estrogen dominance drops enough, your ability to actually have normal neurotransmitter function, normal mood, normal inflammatory status, which changes mood, all these other things, it's a waiting game. Right. So on that mechanical level of, you know, proteins and things determining how you feel, it's a waiting game. But let's take a moment and realize you can feel however the way you actually want to feel by choosing to feel that way, at least somewhat. So it's really important that we all try and make a difference between, I guess, the ratio of feeling empowered and disempowered by all this information about your body. You know, this is maybe what's wrong. This is maybe what's right. This is what, you know, has gone out of balance. This is how to bring it back. And that may bring me more into balance. But if you're in a state right now of thinking, feeling, and reacting to the world that's not working for you, changing your habits is going to help, but they're not going to change you, at least not in a hurry. So those of us who are a bit passive, hoping that my vitamins and my antidepressants and my other stuff are going to magically make my attitude and my state and, and, and my mindset better, partially true, but you're going to have to do the time and find out. But who's doing the time? Hmm. And if you're a typically negative, impatient person, resentful, bitter, you know, we're all broken in the ways that we are, in the beautiful ways that you are, that we are. You're still going to have to be the human being inside and the spirit inside the being of the human being inside saying, I commit to myself, to my state of being, to my expansiveness, to my lovingness, to my patience, even if it's too bloody percent, right? Because I think it's like a black and white thing. Oh, I'll do this and suddenly I'll be like, you know, one of those CrossFit athletes with, you know, 100,000 bucks in that perfect, you know, person on my arm, boy, girl, or I guess there's a lot of flavors now, you know, but um, this idea that we're intrinsically, you know, and especially with respect to the, you know, meme of geeking out, you know, there is a bit of a passivity that we allow to creep in. Oh yeah, well, if I got all these goddamn molecules to do their job, yeah, well, who, who, who's the God in the conversation right now? Or who's the spirit in the conversation right now? Who's, you know, who's, who's the driving force around the feel of the whole thing, right? And we have to find even just a tilt, 1%, 2% towards the positive. 
at least now are engaged as a person. Because otherwise we're some person, you know, who's living in, you know, the penthouse of some really, really random hotel that's got some bad genes and some really weird habits, you know, and, and that's a problem for a lot of people, especially in the kind of functional medicine, integrativist medicine, geek out land of, if I only had enough CoQ10, you know, and, and that's obviously sometimes obviously true, but at the same time, I know this in my life and, you know, maybe most of my problems are in my head, who knows, but if you don't take care of the gumption, you know, the motivation, that's why coaching is a job now. In the yeah. sense of life coaching, I, remember I had a friend come up to me and he's a life coach. He wanted to sort of project with me. And I was just so offended at the time that people thought people needed life coaches. I was just, no, that's just so passive. Jesus. Uh, you know, a couple of years later, I'm hanging with a native elder and he's like, I'm kind of like a life coach. And I wanted to punch him a little bit. I'm just like, what? <laughs> he says, well, we've always needed mentors, you know, and in this quick aside, but a native tradition you're always being mentored or raised up by people about 20 years older than you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're 60, you got to find someone who's 80. And one of my elders is about 80 and he's trying to find some old person around a hundred. And that old person's like, if I could just find someone who's, you know. <laughs> so I had this epiphany in my life, which is how, right. We always need mentors. We're always being raised up by people who've been there first. So if you're listening to this, you get enough of the, I mean, we didn't go that deep into the, the geek out. Because uh, honestly, when I keep looking at my notes, I'm like, I can't make that make sense on an, on an audio recording <laughs> as much as I could try. Uh, but I think if we get the battery analogy in the boat and we get the idea that, you know, we have to change the things we need to change mechanically, that's not that complicated. And I really encourage you to commit to that in whatever style of intermittent fasting seems to make sense to you. But if you believe this is going to change you without you being willing to change, I doubt it. And I'm sorry to be the one saying that, but I'm not. Because, mm. you know, tough love, baby. It's time to, you know, give yourself a little bit of a pinch on the cheek or a spank on, spank on the bum if you need it to just sh shake it up, you know. Some people, I mean, often, often I'll have my patients just rearrange their furniture. Anything you can do to shake it up, to allow your attitude to find another way to be in the world long enough to let some of those habits become habits. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's, that's where the gold is. Cause now you're the one, you know, not only learning the details, putting them into practice, but feeling yourself consistently getting more happy with you because mm -hmm. you're not doing the, I've, I've, I, I, I stopped drinking for five days. I must be cured. <laughs> <laughs> Three weeks go by. Oh, maybe I've got a problem. So, uh, you know, we're, we're all again, crack addict monkeys. Cause that's just how our metabolisms work. We just need to get that triumphant of, you know, what, what needs to change your, your lifestyle? Obviously, if you're trying to change your metabolism, you have to exercise. We didn't even talk about that because we're talking about fasting, but, but you have to do everything and you have to be the one doing it and you can't be passive just waiting for your molecules to fix you. Yeah. You can't be one of those people with a, I don't know, like a cabinet full of, uh, vitamins and expect that to be your health, health in a bottle. Nope. Yeah. And everything helps, but you're the one making, you're the one putting those pills in your, your face. And I've said this, I don't know how many times uh, in the podcast, if you're going to take vitamins, blow on them. Mm -hmm. And if you pray, pray over them. If you don't blow on them. And if you don't think that's a good idea, check out that Japanese guy who can prove thoughts change how water molecules look. So, I mean, blowing on your vitamins and praying over them, or even asking them to be nice to you, pretty sure it's going to make some kind of difference, even if it's just for your own like neuro-linguistic positivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, don't want everyone to get too caught up in the, the fiddly bits because that stuff's just in a way obvious. Like fix your metabolism, it'll work better. This is about you. And I'll, I think in that sort of explanation that, uh, 
you know, gives me pause for, for reflection. You know, my path to health has been years and, um, you know, I'm not done walking on that path yet, but, um, as I started to introduce a different way of uh, being around food, you know, committing to that whole process, um, you know, it wasn't just like one day I woke up and sunshine was pouring out of my ass. It was, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, tooth and nail sometimes, uh, the, the idea of getting sort of mentorship or some sort of coaching around that, um, I think is, uh, is, ex- is excellent advice for sure. And for me, I got that advice through, um, geez, I don't know, uh, volumes of information that I found online, books, talking to health professionals, bumping into you since I moved to Nelson, mm. you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. It's not anything that I did alone, but it was all towards uh, helping me get to the point where um, I could actually see myself as being healthy. I could actually uh, give a crap enough about myself to actually want to do something about seeing myself about being healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole uh, mindset. Um, once that really shifted for me into that sort of gear, you know, it's like when you're driving down the highway, once you get in the fifth gear and you've got another hundred miles to go, you don't even think about the gear anymore. It took a whole lot of effort to get there. But once you're in that, you're just like, driving, cruising along, right? So yeah. so the last thing I'll say that still has to do with what I actually plan to say, but I'm not going to get into the details again. Uh, what I was going to go into the geek out about uh, was basically how intermittent fasting would affect every one of your internal organs individually, your vascular system, your brain, and your immune system. You know, as, as systems, but again, when I look at the all, all the you know, hormones and, and nutrients and tricky things, it's a bit too complicated for a, this kind of a, a medium for people. But if you're a person who's kind of into that process, um, or the, or into that kind of information or that level of information, you'll still find it out there. Maybe braver souls than me would try and explain it on audio, but I'm sure you would find it with somebody with a you know, a a chalkboard or something. So if you're looking for more information to convince you as to why, or you have a specific kind of problem and you want to see if it can help you with that, or if it's safe for that problem, just type in intermittent fasting and whatever. And, uh, you know, very likely you're going to find someone saying, yes, this helps and why, or no, this is not a good idea and why. Uh, but the only ones that I'm aware of are some serious kidney disease and, and, you know, certain kind of brain tumors and stuff like that where uh, intermittent fasting or any kind of fasting would be bad. Yeah. But I would encourage anyone to look at more specific things if you want it to be more more precisely inspired for your situation. Or feel free to leave us a comment or a question about how this would uh, impact that. And we're going to try and get back to our question and answer uh, podcast thing. So we're just going to rack them up and then do a day where we'll, we'll just answer everyone's questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was going to suggest as well that uh, uh, you'd be open to hearing uh, questions from people. Uh, fusionhealthradio at gmail.com or you can uh, message us on Facebook or comment there. Look for Fusion Health Radio. And um, yeah, there's... Soon we'll have a website that you can even leave a recorded question for. Ooh, fancy mm-hmm. pants. <laughs> Not only does he know his way around intermittent fasting, <laughs> he's a website ninja. Uh, very cool. Yep. Um, was there any more sort of details that you wanted to cover? Did we ring all the, the bells? More fat, less protein we'll get you there faster. But we're going to get into a conversation about ketosis, I think next week or the week after. So that's a subject that I've been, you know, sharpening my claws uh, over about four months because I didn't, I just didn't feel like I really understood it completely enough to just go and do a, you know, superficial thing on it. So we're going to go deeper into the geek out around ketosis, which is the one of the metabolic benefits of long-term intermittent fasting. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, that's, but that's a much more specific thing around exactly what to eat. And again, mostly fat. Stay tuned for a Fusion Health Radio podcast near you, coming soon, all that sort of stuff. Um, wow, lots to, uh, lots to review on this podcast. Um, I always learn more when I listen back the second time <laughs> after actually being here in front of the mics. <laughs> Uh, This has been Fusion Health Radio, episode 56, Intermittent Fasting, or what's the problem intermittent intermittent fasting is solving? Maybe that's what we should name it, eh? Uh, Up to you, man. I just work here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we'll we'll figure that out. Uh, Again, follow us on Facebook. Uh, Subscribe where you uh, find all of your fine podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, Um, We're all over the internet. Just look for Fusion Health Radio. You'll find us there. Uh, Apple, iTunes. uh, And for those of you who have Android devices, uh, I heard this recently, um, Google is now indexing um, in the same way that when you search for something, if you've got your little Android device, your smartphone, and you search for something, um, you know how Google likes to show you uh, video-related content? Well, now it's going to start showing you podcast-related content. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, which means that the bazillions of people who own Android devices, which is the majority of people in the world, um, will now have access to this kind of information. So you might just see us, uh, if you're listening uh, on your smartphone, you might be able to just quickly and easily search up intermittent fasting and Fusion Health Radio and click play right there. So our listenership is going to go through the roof, man. Woo. Yeah. I better start practicing your autographs. Um, that's it. We're done for the day. Fusion House Radio. I'm Anthony Santa. Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, we'll see you in the next podcast. Blow on your vitamins, folks. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio. 